everybody. Welcome to a re-release of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. What you'll hear is a blending of old and new and some thoughts as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't know if mine is a voice that matters in that one, but I do know that for some reason I felt the call to say something. And so here's some of my words, some of the words of some people I've been reading. Here we go. Off of our humble house So no one seemed to know what we were called Yeah, the funny thing is We became everyone's business Bouncing checks from thoughts they were appalled Imagine that a 200-pound bully pushed a 60-pound kid off of a swing, stole his lunch money, and then put his foot on the little kid's neck. While choking, imagine that the little kid threw a stone at the bully's head. If the bully responded by beating the kid to a pulp, would we ever say, I support the bully's right to defend himself? Of course not. Without justifying stone throwing, we would identify that the primary problem to be solved is the powerful foot on the kid's neck, not the throwing of stones. The oppressor does not get to claim self-defense when the oppressed fights back. As we watch and grieve the escalating violence in the Holy Land, let us pray for an end to the Israeli occupation that has its boot on the neck of the Palestinian people. Nothing can change while the boot remains. Let us pray and work for true peace that brings security, dignity, and deep freedom to both Israel and Palestine. Blessed are the peacemakers. So if I'm lost, I'm sure to come back around. I wanna love you without That is from a Facebook post from friend of the show, past guest, Aaron Nequist. Now, I wanna put that in some contest here. So here are just some of the headlines from just the last 48 hours. At recording, it is literally 107 on May 16th. 15 minutes ago, here is what it says. An Israeli airstrike in Gaza destroyed several homes on Sunday, killing 42 Palestinians, including 10 children. Health officials said as militants fired rockets at Israel with no end in sight to seven days of fighting. Another headline says, Netanyahu says Gaza campaign continuing with full force. Now, I could keep going and going and going after seven days of violence and bloodshed, but it's disheartening. Now, I get it. There is a lot going on between the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, and I understand that probably many of you listening right now are thinking, why do I care? I came here to listen to a podcast, and I don't want to deal with any of that. And I totally get that. Honestly, I get that for the same reason that literally I lose patrons whenever I talk about racism. Every single time. But it doesn't matter because those are the things that we should be able to talk about at church. And this conflict between the Israeli and the Palestinian, it is so much deeper than I recognize, than you recognize. We're addicted though, aren't we? We're addicted to othering. We're addicted to military and empire and power. And because of our wealth or my wealth as an American, I exert that influence and power. It's the story of 
all time, isn't it? It's a cycle. And to quote a lyric from a song from uh, Remedy Drive, why are we so warlike? And it's not just Israel and Palestine. It's so many different conflicts. It doesn't actually need to be this way. At least I don't think so. I get it. Some of you will call me pie in the sky. Some of you will say it doesn't matter. Others of you will start throwing it other weirdly phrased philosophical attacks of we have to defend ourselves and da 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 and I don't want to hear it because a child died. Many children have died and it's mostly on the Palestinian side but on both sides. Families are broken apart. Innocent people are being destroyed out of fear and out of hate and out of military might and it's ridiculous. As I was chewing on what episode to release for this coming week, I struggled with it. And instead, I found myself coming back to a conversation that I had with Jeremy Courtney. And it's one from, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago. It's based on a book, but Jeremy has a unique perspective. And I think his perspective can also bring some wisdom to what's happening today and what happened yesterday. And his wisdom can also maybe help us build for a better tomorrow. And I want to read you something that an organization that he runs wrote just a little while ago. Here's what it says. What is happening right now is not a clash between two equal sides as it is sometimes framed in news reports. It is an exercise of phenomenal power by a strong, well-financed military striking out at an impoverished stateless people, many of whom have lived their whole lives displaced and some who are being driven from their homes right now. With that kind of strength comes immense moral responsibility. With it comes the burden of restraint. It does not mean you cannot protect yourself, but the response must not be disproportionate to the actual threat. With that kind of strength comes the burden of de-escalation. Precisely because you have the biggest guns, you have less to lose by making the first move toward peace. The moral obligation to stop the spread of violence rests first and foremost on the shoulders of those with the greatest power to cause violence. We cannot bomb our way to peace. So where does that leave the rest of us? What can those of us who aspire to be peacemakers do with our power? We can't turn away. We are all intimately connected to what is happening in Israel and Gaza right now. Because for many of us, particularly citizens of the U.S. and the EU, the violence we are witnessing is paid for in part by our own tax dollars. We fund this to the tune of nearly $4 billion a year from the United States alone. As a community of peacemakers, we need to think about the part we play in violence happening half a world away. We need to have hard conversations with each other about how we can support people we love, Palestinians and Jews, without fueling violence. (sighs) It's a heavy world. I am of the understanding that the research is out there to say that there is a definite connection between how we think and how we live, how how we identify and how we live. I don't know if it's enough necessarily to say that, you know, maybe some of the pithiest mantras about we are what we think or whatever. I, I don't know if that is perfectly true or not, but I, there, I there's definitely a connection between how we see the world. I do believe that we find what we go looking for, you know? So if you're, if you're wounded, 
and your wound might be justified and your wound really happened to you and it's legitimate, but you constantly live the rest of your life from a position of waiting to be wounded again, you absolutely will be over and over and over and over. I wanna love you without calling you mine. I wanna know you without wasting your time. I wanna see you without me going blind. Is that fine? Hey there, you beautiful people. How are you doing? Welcome back to the show, episode 98. Two more until uh, the terrifying one uh, where I just talk, which is, ugh, it's all right. I've committed, I put it out on the internet, so we're doing it. But welcome to the show. Really, really, really like today's conversation. So these last few months, um, and again, I try to stay apolitical, apolitical, however you say that, uh, intentionally. But I feel like at least in at least in America and most Western countries or superpower type countries, the way that we view people that are not from our tribe, our country, our circle, our family, our political party, our church, whatever the circle is that you've drawn that you call home, people that are outside of that, especially religious and socioeconomical or language barriered. We just treat them way different. There is an inherent distrust. And if you don't believe me, just watch. Just watch people. There is an inherent distrust. And I know you'll hear people say, well, that's the world that we live in. Or you you just can't be too safe. Or you don't watch the news. It's just a horrible world. But that is not the case. That is not truthful. And that is not the gospel. Not even close. And that's what I talk about today with Jeremy Courtney. Really hope that you like it. Let's rock and roll. Jeremy, man, I'm I'm a, so a. Welcome to the show. I say A a lot. I've said I'm going to stop saying A, B, C, but I can't. It's just the way that I am, so people are going to have to I thought it was it. a Canadian A or something like, no, welcome to the show, no. A. No, I'm from Texas. We don't say A. Okay. We say, okay. what do we say? Y'all. But whatever. But welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you on. I was not extremely familiar with some of your work until I started reading the book, which, by the way, thank you for sending me Van's copy of it. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect when I read it, and then they sent me like a link to what you do, and I kind of read through it. I was like, this is different. I don't usually have this conversation, and so I'm excited to have you on, man. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. For those like me that are just like, well, who the, who is Jeremy Courtney? What would you say? Like, What are the things in your life that have made you you, and then those things that have kind of propelled you into doing what you do now? Hmm. Well, that's largely what the book is about. New book, Love Anyway, high-level overview. I lead an organization called Preemptive Love that exists to end war. Moved to Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war 12 years ago, 13 years ago, something like that. Been living in Iraq, uh, going to the front lines of conflict for the last decade, Syria, Iraq, uh, our team's done a ton of work in Libya. You know, the, the work has grown as we set our sights to end war and the organization's name, Preemptive Love, you know, as we seek to kind of lead out in this way of like really pushing the limits of what would it mean to love first, ask questions later, you mm-hmm. know, kind of in the spirit of a preemptive strike. 
And then what would it look like to when the wheels fall off the bus and everything gets really scary and you just want to give up and walk away? What would it look like to press in and love anyway, in spite of the fear, in spite of our differences, in spite of the things that are tearing us apart? So that's that's had us for you know, 12, 13 years um, pressing into the front lines of conflict, providing emergency relief and long-term assistance like job creation and building up communities and infrastructures in the spirit of peacemaking, yeah. in the spirit of bringing people back together, reconciling groups to one another and changing the ideas that that lead to war. So that's kind of the high-level overview of me and the organization Preemptive Love and the work we do together. So are you primarily focus centrally in the Middle East, or is it many other countries outside of that as well? We started in the Middle East, and as we've been successful and grown and developed you know, models and blueprints that we believe apply universally, uh, we're engaged in everything from nuclear negotiations on the Korean Peninsula to... Um, you know, North Africa, Middle East, and Mexico, mm. Central American migration matters. You know, it's it's always a combination of providing providing hard, tangible, concrete solutions, mm -hmm. and then working in the spirit of peacemaking to change the ideas that lead to war. Yeah, to change the systems and and to change ourselves. So that's that work is U.S. based and European, and uh, you know, it, it's about our ideas and not just our. Uh, the kind of concrete symptomatic things that a lot of us see on the news. The idea of preemptive love I like, and I feel like when Christians give lip service to other countries that we're going to help, they also speak that way. And then nobody does that. And so I'm curious, you know, how did you get into, like, what was the call that you're like, no, this is broken and I'm going to do something about it. And here's what I can do. Like, how did that transition actually happen? Um, I can't remember either. I didn't read it or I didn't pay enough attention. Is this, is this posture towards other, air quotes, other, the way that you were raised, like the church that you were raised in? Or is that something that you've transitioned into as you've come out of, I guess, youthfulness evangelicalism? Yeah, I, it's definitely something... I'll say it has, it's a continual unfolding or unfurling. There are ways to look back at my upbringing generously, my family generously, and say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. My family raised me to be considerate of the other. And here's what it looked like. There are other people out there who worship false gods, and they need to be saved. And we are right we have the truth. We need to go save them. You need to go be a part of saving them. That gave way to kind of a next version of that as I grew and matured and experienced more of the world. That gave way to a, a kind of more broadly inclusive version of that, which then some of it fell apart for me altogether and gave way to a more broadly inclusive. So I think in the most generous way to look back on my past and where I come from and my family is to say, yeah, I think we did love others. And I think we did want to love others, but I also look back and go, but I think we did it in a fairly narrow way that that has given way to further and further inclusivity of of other people. You know, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm still learning how to articulate some of this stuff, but that's how I'm understanding it today. Well, I can tell you as people 
So as this show continues to grow, other people will email me asking questions similar to that, uh, which is why it's become a question that I ask, because I honestly don't often have the same answer either. I had someone ask me the other day, she's like, what kind of Christian are you? And I was like, madly in love with Jesus. And she's like, well, where would you go to church? I'm like, I, I don't know how to answer that. I don't think that denomination is the right question to ask. It's, it's not important, if that makes sense. But yeah, so it's, I like to hear other people's thoughts on that. I want to touch on some of the things in the book, and I'll probably bounce around. And I'll also say, I appreciate how short and how brief uh, many of these stories are. I read a lot of books, and I get sent a lot of books, and I try to be as genuine as possible and read as much as I can before I talk to people about what they've written. Because if not, that just seems disingenuine, and it's a waste we of time. We all appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> there is a chapter that calls, It Matters What We Call People. And the reason I bring that one up is you talk a lot about, and I'm going to say the names wrong. Hold on. Is it? There's like a story that you're referencing in your first book in Preemptive Love. And I don't know how to say his name, but in there you talk about you called him a name called and I don't know how to pronounce that either. And that means free. And then you say, but his name wasn't really that. And he was never really free. And then you go on to talk about, you know, it matters, the names, the titles, the posture, it matters to what it teaches us about other people, like the titles that we give them, the names that they're called by, the truths that they have. And so I'm curious kind of how that shift has happened, like kind of what that means if you were to break it apart. And if I'll, I'll be entirely transparent, because all that we, I mean, we, you're probably, you're back in the news cycle here in the States. So welcome back to the name calling, the pejorative as opposed to normal name, like the degradation of, of humanity. Like, People don't care anymore what titles anymore. So why should they? Why does it matter? You know, these are deeply personal stories. And um, so the the guy in question here, I talk about a little bit in my first book as well. And and essentially in my first book, and even in this book, um, I've had to play with some of the naming conventions because um, the situation is just very fraught with threat and retaliation and you know we've paid a really high price in this relationship but in how this once former friend has has retaliated against us in pit militia and government and spy like agency forces against us tribal forces when you say us, us you mean preemptive love uh our family first and foremost mm. and and then kind of the organization at a secondary level Here's the heart of that story, I guess, that, that I was getting at. He was a refugee on the run from a war in you know the 80s, 90s, growing up. His parents were guerrilla fighters. His dad was a guerrilla fighter alongside um, some very, very prominent guerrilla fighters that went on to become leaders of countries, you know, leaders of the country. And uh, he was named, they literally named him refugee. Literally, like in the local language, his name was Refugee. So it's as if in the English language, you would call your son to dinner every night and you would say, hey, Refugee, hmm. dinner's on the table. And when you think about the environment and the culture of what it means to be a refugee, kicked out, displaced, rejected, uh, you know, homeless, no place to lay your head, not wanted. Imagine being called not wanted, the reject every night 
for dinner every mm-hmm. night when you come in from playing to go to bed you know your parents are essentially calling calling you oh rejected one come to bed i just i i just when he turned on us which i cover much more deeply in the book I always had a lot of sympathy for him, even as he was trying to destroy our family and threaten our kids and threaten my wife. And we, we were arrested and put in jail. I always had a lot of empathy for him because I just thought, what must it do to a person's psyche to be called the rejected homeless one day after day after day after day mm-hmm. growing up? And, and what must it do to your psyche to make you overreach and overreact and, you know, kind of pursue these overwrought tactics to make yourself matter and to show that you're significant and to show that you're strong and you'll never be rejected again as an adult. I think we ended up bearing the brunt of his insecurities and and the brunt of, in a way, this is a bit of a metaphor, but I also think there's some literalism to it, what his parents named him, Mm -hmm. what his parents called him and what society had called him for his entire life. And I it was, it was a very, this isn't a metaphor, like he's my friend and his name is literally refugee. But it also somehow just landed with this global significance to me once I realized it. Like this, this is what we do globally mm-hmm. as well. We, we reject entire groups of people. We overwrite these names on them as essentially terrorist, rejected one, dirty, rapist, you know, yeah. all this other kind of stuff. What must that do to the psyche of a person and an individual and a group to have that overlaid on them year after year after year? And maybe we have some complicity in how how things play out. It matters what we call people. So maybe we should take the risk to name people more generously, to to call people more affirmingly who who they are at a deeper level, to even dare name people who we believe they can be, Hmm. overcomer, you know, resilient one, um, the one who perseveres, you know, like what if we, what if he had been named that instead of homeless, refugee, rejected? I I just wonder, might his life turn out different? When the sun, when the sun comes back out Uh, in your experience, if someone begins to try to live into a new identity, like a new template of what they're supposed to be by name, you know, as a, as a calling, are they successful? Like, is it traumatic? How do you walk alongside that? Because I think you're right. Like, the church should do that. Humans should do that. Canadians should do that. Europe should do that. China, Chinese people should do that. Beyond language barriers should do that. But how well does the person that's trying to do that, in your experience, succeed? Are they able to ascend? Like, what's required? Ascend's probably the wrong word. I'm using a bad word there, but it's the best I can come up with. No, I get it. I I mean, I think the psychology, the, the personal development studies are pretty clear that we, there are significantly important things that happen to us in childhood that can start to chart the path and direction for the rest of our lives. Those things can be overcome. But they are also often overcome in a way where we we are bringing that baggage or that scar or that trauma or that shadow with us, you know, kind of wherever we go from this point forward. So I think it's hugely important that we we em- 
still this kind of stuff in our kids at a young age and that we work to help our kids be resilient against the insensitivities of the playground and mm -hmm. the cafeteria that can really wound us all at, at a young age in, in some ways that we never fully grapple with or understand. We just carry the wound with us without understanding what Timmy said to me in gym class and why I still feel insecure as a grown man about how Timmy made fun of me, you know? Yeah. So I, I think we have to do this stuff early because helping our kids avoid the deepest wounds is the best methodology. It's the, it's the best hope and the best solution. Um, once they're wounded and traumatized and hurt and insecure, then the next layer is, well, how can we, how can we help each other overcome? Mm -hmm. And again, I, I am of the understanding that, the research is out there to say that there is a definite connection between how we think and how we live, how, how we identify and how we live. I don't know if it's enough necessarily to say that, you know, maybe some of the pithiest mantras about we are what we think or whatever. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that is perfectly true or not, but I, there, I, there's definitely a connection between how we see the world. I do believe that we find what we go looking for, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're wounded and your wound might be justified and your wound really happened to you and it's legitimate, but you constantly live the rest of your life from a position of waiting to be wounded again, you absolutely will be over and over and over and mm. over. I think, I think there's a lot of truth and we find what we're looking for because I say that often to people when they're reading the Bible. Like if you want to find a hateful, angry God that despises humans, you can find it. You, you just read the right verses and you'll find a version of God that, that doesn't look like Jesus. But if you want to find a different version as well, you know, of a loving, compassionate, kind, welcoming, inclusive, divine being, uh, you'll find that too. And there's a lot of things in between there. I'm curious because your perspective is different than anyone that I've ever spoken to. So from what I understand, like you sat face to face with people of different cultures, different religions, different I mean, different everything. And so what are some of the biggest misconceptions that someone like me here in Central Virginia or in LA or in Denver, wherever, have of of the 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 culture and the posture of you know people in Syria and people in Iraq and Iran and everywhere else? Like what is what are some of the misconceptions that keep us back from actually having an honest dialogue with them? Well, we often I'll say it this way. People are more than we think they are. Always. Whatever thing is conjured up in our minds when we say Iranian, Iranians are much more than that. Whatever thing you might think when someone hear, when you hear the word Muslim, Muslims writ large are definitely more than that. White evangelical, white evangelicals are more than that, you know, so on and so forth. So I think it's, it's just helpful to keep that as a principle in our life when we're making generalizations. Generalizations are useful to a degree. We all need boxes to sort the world into and, and make meaning of things. But when we start to over-identify others by the labels that we put on them, when we reduce people to just a handful of labels that we put on them, things start to go awry. Mm -hmm. So... It's, it's helpful, like traveling the world, sitting with people, broadening your, your network and your set of relationships, 
or or not traveling the world. I guess traveling the world is a bit of a metaphor now. I mean, I still think there are unique things that you can experience by going to other literal countries where that's the predominating culture or the predominating religion or politic. But but you can also leave home in some very significant ways in your car just an hour from where you know any of us live. And I think those can be profoundly important, significant experiences. But it's it's important that we do so under the rubric of believing that people are more than we think they are. Yeah. And and if we allow people to become more colorful, more three dimensional, more fully orbed in our minds, I think we will will get the more beautiful world that many of us claim to want, but don't quite seem to know how to access. I want to make sure I ask this question right because I don't want to be. Well, it won't be offensive. I just want to make sure it's it's said correctly. So I think I can guess at what half of the church would think of the way that preemptive love is trying to minister to people because it seems antithetical to the way that our government tries to do anything with people. Like we just flex power and you're trying to flex action as opposed to bullets. Is that a mischaracterization or is that close? Yeah, I think we're definitely about action. Okay. I'll let you make the comments about the government and I'll just say... <laughs> That's fair. I'm happy. We, we, I'm happy to. We think, we think in terms of peace through action. Yes. Yeah. So how have other communities, you know, as you're living in Iraq or whatever, how have other faith communities, like how have you been able to partner with them if you've been able to? Like how have you been able to sit mm. with, you know, uh, you know, with sheiks and with Muslims and with imams and with other... I have to think that those aren't the only religion there. There must also be Buddhists and Sikhs and, and everything else as well. So how have you found... A channel. I don't feel like there's a chasm. I think that that's made up because I've found from doing this, most people of other religions are entirely excited to talk with somebody and do things with other people. If it is changing the world, and not in a wheel, not in a real like transactional way, but in a real, I'm changed and you're changed, and so my kids are changed, which will change things for generations. Like, how have you yep. partnered or been successful partnering? How did you form those partnerships? If so, with the people there locally. Well, let me go back to the how through a lot of mistakes, through a lot of arrogance, through a lot of trial and error. Mostly error is what propelled us to the next thing that actually ends up working. I came in extremely arrogant. I came in really hot to the Middle East, I think, in ways that I would have never said at the time, but I now say, I now believe I, I was actually some kind of agent in the war on terror. I was I was recruited in some ways into the war on terror. Recruited by whom? Uh, by the church. Okay. I, I think the church was as much a part of the conversation about the war on terror as the government or the CIA or Homeland Security was. We couched it in terms of loving others, serving others, missions. But because in the American environment, evangelicalism has, has been, and particularly in that time, was so tied up with seeking for power and control of the government, that government functions and government messaging was also pulpit messaging and preaching. And, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the aftermath of September 11th, when our collective psyche was extremely vulnerable and wounded, it, it wasn't just the World Trade Center that got attacked. It wasn't just the Pentagon that got attacked. It was essentially the American religion that got attacked. It was it was like the destruction of the Jewish temple, after which nothing was ever the same. Our mm -hmm. temple was destroyed. And if you come after our temple and you come after our white capitalist evangelical American God, 
then the only response for a tribalistic government religion is to fight back. And so I think a lot of what we were doing in our early response, and I cover, I cover this in the book, was a weird admixture of religion and nationalism. And mm -hmm. so I brought that angst, I brought that energy, I brought that arrogance, I brought that dominating spirit of the war on terror and a, a kind of Christian supremacist worldview into the Middle East at a time where they were rightly very scared of people like me and Americans and Christian jihad or Christian crusades, you know. Mm -hmm. So I made a lot of mistakes. I wounded a lot of people with my words and my aggressiveness and my sort of absolutist approach to how to talk about faith and how to engage culture. And I just, I just brought all that arrogance with me. And I hurt people that I really loved. I, I hurt friendships that I really hoped would endure for a while. And that changed me, you know, losing people changed me, getting locked out of the room changed me. Um, having people not return my phone calls anymore changed me because I had just been so arrogant and made people into projects and reduced people to just their religion and reduced people to just notches in my belt that I could try to accrue. All that changed me. So I could say more positive things and I, I'm happy to in a minute, but I want to mm -hmm. start with the error side of things and say we became who we are. We became these kind of people who are more inclusive and this kind of unfolding that I talked about, we, we, we did it through, I did it through great arrogance and error. Give me a minute. We'll be right back. I can finally hear my conscience Listen close to what it says If you don't make your bed You don't have to lie in it We'll talk about then how you partnered with like as you move through that arrogance i hear a lot of truth in that as well um i have found more recently that i am still entirely arrogant mm. and i'm realizing that where i'm at in my faith is not the same that i was 10 years ago and it's not a realistic expectation to expect anyone else to have done any of the work that i've yeah. done and it's also not realistic to assume that the work that I've done has always been beneficial either. I may still misunderstand something and I need to be willing to go, oh, I think I'm wrong here. Which I know the past versions of me, I, I was never wrong. Of course I'm right. You, Jeremy, you know you're wrong. You just don't know you're wrong. But let me tell you why you're wrong. So how then did you take what you learned and what are some of the practical things that you've done? Because my goal here is maybe somebody is listening and they've been afraid to walk over to this imam or this mosque, or they've been afraid to walk over somewhere else and figure out how we can partner locally. Because uh, like it or not, you know, the demographics of America are shifting very quickly. Uh, they won't stop shifting because that stuff happens exponentially because people like to have babies, um, present company included. So it won't get any better. And I think it was past uh, guest a few weeks ago, you know, I asked Brad Jersak something similar. And he's like, you know, we need to figure out how to treat other people that we disagree with better because their children will be the ones taking care of us. And they have long memories. They will remember how they were treated as children, getting back to you're talking about childhood trauma earlier. So what have you done practically there locally that has bridged partnerships with other faiths and with other circles of not influence, but circles of impact? 
I think it's helpful for me to just remind people that I got on a plane and I moved into another environment. Hmm. My first country that I landed in, Turkey, I landed in with all that arrogance that I was talking about before. Then I had a profound spiritual waking up experience that I talk about in the book that essentially launched us into a new era. I left behind the arrogance. It wasn't really a conscious thing. It wasn't really a decision in many ways. It happened to me. I I fell into another way of being. I I literally saw the light, heard the voice, everything changed mm-hmm. in ways that spiritually speaking or theologically speaking, I, I didn't believe could happen. I didn't believe that stuff happened anymore. And something happened to me from deep inside my psyche or from externally God above. I don't know, but something happened and I changed which then catapulted us into this next era. We moved to Iraq. Mm-hmm. We left behind a lot of what we were doing in the past. We're, we're definitely not a part of the war on terror kind of approach to life anymore. And I, I started a new way of being. And I guess the point I want to highlight here as step number one is I left home. Even though I left home messily, even though I left home with arrogance, I suspect that something about that spiritual awakening still only happened because I left home. Hmm. And a lot of us want the change and we claim we want the all new world of some variety or another, but we don't want to leave home. We don't want, and, and you can take that any way you want. Like we don't want to literally leave the neighborhood we live in. We don't want to literally leave the house that we're halfway on our mortgage on. We don't want to leave our city. We don't want to leave our family where we are kind of alongside the grandparents. All of that's understandable and valid. It, it's This isn't about shaming or right or wrong, but there's just something about leaving home that allows us mm-hmm. to change. And if if we utterly refuse to leave home, refuse to leave our faith, refuse to leave our church, refuse to relinquish anything, that's cool. There's a lot of people who live that way. And like, that's most of us. But you don't get extraordinary results. You don't get results that are out of the ordinary if you don't do something that's out of the ordinary. And so I think we should just be mindful of that. Whichever way any of us choose to go, I'm not here to to shame or say one thing's better than another necessarily. But I think sometimes we carry a lot of us because like social activists or social influencers or missionaries or, you know, charity types get brought on these podcasts. It can create an environment where it's like, oh, I wish my life was more like that. I should have something epic going on. So we carry a kind of shame with us, even though we know we're probably never going to leave home. Like we're we're (laughs) never going to do the step that would lead us to that sort of thing. And it actually creates an environment of shame. And I'd rather just remove mm-hmm. the environment of shame and say, look, if you don't want to leave home and you don't want to relinquish your control on the way things are, I'm not here to say that's bad at all. We need people to hold it down. But just like maybe give up on the idea that you're supposed to have some like drastically different life as well, because you're probably surrounded by people who look a lot like you. And, and so yeah. like, maybe don't live with all the shame that like, you need to have this super diverse life if you're not willing to take that first step that would lead you to a much more diverse life. I like that. And I like it for a couple of reasons. So I used this metaphor yesterday. So when I was playing football in high school, we had a coach that drew two big circles on the blackboard and in a small circle was all of our plays. 
And then the larger blackboard was effectively, here's where the magic happens. So like sometimes we're going to have to break out of the mold and do something. But that does not mean that someone that can't leave home or won't leave home or doesn't have the means to leave home or is entirely fearful of leaving home, that they don't have a purpose to serve in a role of someone that's doing what you do. Because you need people to pay for it. You need people to legit... I'll, I'll, here, I'll break this down a different way. Like, there is no way to do refugee, like, after an earthquake type of support without an organization like an institutional church or the Red Cross or something like that. But there's also no way to administer it without people actually leaving and doing work doing things with that. So there's a case for both places. But I like the shame part. Like if you can't do it, just figure out what you can do instead and do that. Like how to come alongside at work. Because everybody has a voice. I find people are unwilling to use it for fear of being shunned. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about war and then children. Is there, and I say this because I am aware that the Bible is written primarily to refugees and the oppressed people of whatever the superpower happens to be at the day, you know, Babylon, Assyria, um, you know, Israel, and when Rome is oppressing them. Like, it's always the oppressed people that the Bible's written to, but we tend to take it the other way of we're blessed by God, and so we get to now do what we want to do, because of course we're God's chosen people, when really it's always the migrant, the immigrant, the, the downtrodden. So is there a case at all for a nation to ever go to war? Like, is there a justifiable reason to do so? Or can we actually solve things just through love and that type of mediation? Like, with your experience, is there ever a reason to hold that posture? I want to avoid anything I'm about to say from being seen as like a Christian case for or whatever. That's not that's okay. not the voice with which I'm trying to speak right now. Or, you know, even a, a preemptive love case for. I, sure. I think institutions of various kinds, ranging from the marriage as an institution, if you want to see it that way, partnership, institution, mm -hmm. whatever, to the family unit, to the clan, to the tribe, to the government, to the UN, international intercoalition type things. I think the institution should, they, they all have different roles and they all mean to protect and serve different people in different ways at different times at different threat levels, you know, um, at, at threat level red there are different responses that that any one of us would probably want from the institution that is meant to organize us or protect us than we would expect at threat level green. So I think massively sweeping statements that like a country should never go to war, mm -hmm. it, I don't find it to be that helpful. I am generally pacifistic and that's pacifist with a C not an S. It means to pacify, to mollify, to try and, you know, bring the temperature down, to reconcile, to to bring about a peace without doing violent harm to one another. I, I am generally diplomatic in that way. I, I look first, middle, and last, hopefully, to diplomatic solutions. How can we each get what we want somehow, and what do we each need to give up so that we can get there and not destroy each other? But a general approach called pacifying may not always work. I mean, when you've, when mm -hmm. you've got a, a terrorist organization like ISIS barreling down the highway, slaughtering people everywhere they go, when there's literally no one to negotiate with, when there's l apparently no interlocutor who could broker peace with whom diplomatic negotiations could be pursued, a group that cannot be trusted to deal in good faith. 
a group that doesn't represent some kind of principle of nationalist sovereignty. Like the, it, groups like that present real challenges to some of our ideals and our values that we might otherwise wish to see upheld. I just want to be sober-minded about that because yeah. it's been my friends and my family who have, and I, I say that with a grain of salt, you know, we have been at risk and we have friends, good close friends who have lost utterly and absolutely everything, everything to this kind of environment, this kind of situation in groups like ISIS. So do I believe that it is completely ever only always disallowed for a government to to use force to stop the slaughter of thousands no i don't i don't think that's helpful um, okay. do i think we probably use force too freely too quickly do i think we use forceful rhetoric in ways that actually makes real diplomacy almost impossible yeah i think I think a lot of our foreign policy is a mess and a disaster, but I would not go so far as to say that, you know, force or violence should 100% be disallowed. I'm always thinking, what can I do better so that my kids have a church to be a part of in five decades because I'm genuinely fearful for that. And I ask that question a lot and I get a lot of different answers because everybody comes from a different lens and a different bias. How has raising children in a country not our own, but mixed with and, and blended with, you know, the culture that you bring with you as well as the culture there, like how is being a father in that environment changing the way that you parent? And then what could other parents listening take to their children to be like, here's some things that we can try when we're explaining, you know, scenarios, when we're talking about fear of other, when we're talking about bullying or when we're talking about, and I'll tell you why, because one thing I'm afraid of is um, my son is extremely logical. And so if I give him something, he'll take that and he'll just shift who's being targeted. So if it was this thing being targeted, the other aspect of it becomes the goal of targeting that. There's no nuance in between. And I don't know if I'm explaining that yeah. well, but like, if I'm talking about like, don't fear uh, homosexuality, then Everybody that does is now the enemy, when really that's not what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you to lead by example. But how is raising children in a different culture, but mixed with yours? Because I think it must be. I don't know how you turn that off. Like, How is that changing the way you parent? I guess, in a way, it comes back to that principle of leaving home. These are uh, not ideas for us. They are relationships. So where once, in a way, we came from an environment where Muslims were sort of the ultimate other uh, where the, the word itself was all but equated with terrorism or terrorist. That's not how my kids have been raised. That's not what my kids know to be true. Uh, Muslims are aunt, our uncle, our neighbor, our great, great cooks, our really fun friends, our coworkers. You know, like that's what Muslim means to my kids. I couldn't get my kids to think, Muslim means terrorist <laughs> for anything like that would that would take some massive reprogramming at this point for my kids to come to believe that Muslim means terrorist. It would take some massive reprogramming for my kids to come to believe that queer means deviant like that that would that's not how they know and experience the world, even though that's how I grew up knowing and experiencing the world. so mm -hmm. I think 
relationship. I, I think it comes back to the idea of we've we've we have an opportunity. I'll just keep calling it an invitation. There, there's an invitation in front of us if we want to take it to educate our kids relationally. I know a lot of us deeply want to educate our kids in a principled way. We want to be able to talk to them about values and we want to use our dinner table time to instill values and principles. But that that can only get us so far. What will take us to a deeper, more resilient place is relationship where, where you're not essentially preaching at your kids or rationalizing with our kids, but we're just experiencing life with our LGBTQ friends and our Muslim mm-hmm. friends and our Buddhist friends and our black friends or our white friends or, you know, our migrant undocumented friends. When those become the warp and wolf of our life, then we won't have to preach the principles. We won't have to rationalize because they will just know. So I want to end with this. Point people to what you're doing. How do people partner? Because I want to revisit what I said at the beginning. Like, I'll I'll be honest, I was entirely off the radar with Preemptive Love Coalition even existing. Like, I, I wasn't familiar with it until, I forget who it was, reached out and said, hey, what do you think about a chat with Jeremy. And the more that I research, the more that I feel guilty that I wasn't. And so I'd like other people to kind of know, like, how can others that can't leave, won't leave, but want to do something, how can they partner, you know, maybe at a local place in the United States, and then also with other organizations like yourself, point people in the right direction? Um, and where can they find the book as it comes out, I believe, in September? Is it 26? September 26th off the top of yep, my head. 24th. That, dang it. I was guessing. I was so close. Get it, get it um, two days early. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, pre-order on Amazon. You probably will. Like, get the Kindle version early. Why not? Where would you point people to to partnership with people like yourself that are doing work that matters? Because I genuinely think the work that you're doing does matter. I, I, I can't say that strongly enough. So where would you point people to? Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, let me just reiterate a couple things. Organization is called Preemptive Love. Um, you know, in the middle of living through these wars and these uprisings with ISIS and things like that, our work has become largely about um, providing emergency relief to people who are fleeing conflict and helping Mm. provide jobs, businesses uh, to help communities rebound and be resilient to fend off violence and war. And then the, the deeper ethos that runs through everything we do is what you might call peacemaking or reconciliation work or how do we change the ideas that lead to war and and help bring people back to each other. It got really scary there at times where I didn't want to love anymore. The, the preemptive love idea is born out of this idea that like, what if we love first and ask questions later? It was full of like youthful optimism and zeal. And then the wheels came off the bus and like, I didn't want to love anymore. And this beautiful friend and person in my life spoke up and said, I think we need to press in and love anyway. And so this idea of like loving anyway has become the predominating theme of of my life and our work. The book is called Love Anyway. And it's all about acknowledging that, yes, sometimes this stuff can be scary as hell. Yes, uh, we have these things that are truly different between us that are driving us apart. But without surrendering 
in the first step, who we are and how we know ourselves to be, we can press in toward one another. We can press in toward the front lines. We can press in toward the things that we don't understand. And we can work together to heal what's tearing us apart on the front lines where we live, you know, in Virginia, Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. This isn't about when I say leave home, it's not about getting on a plane and going to Iraq. It's about leaving the familiar. It's about the circles your coach drew on the board. It's where the magic happens. So mm-hmm. if, if we want to do more than rationalize with our kids over the dinner table, if we want to do more than, you know, take a principled approach to education, but a more experiential or relational approach, we are building and have built those tools for you. We, we have what's called a Love Anyway Gathering. Love Anyway Gathering is meant to be a new kind of community in your neighborhood. So if this is all interesting to you and you want to help us end war, you want to stop the next war before it starts, it's going to start over economics. It's going to start over partisanship. It's it's going to start over ethnicity, resources, uh, religion. These are the things that we use to tear each other apart. And so Love Anyway Gathering is about saying, why don't you grab someone in your life? It's going to take a risk, but take a little bit of risk to walk across the office or to walk across the street and go to that neighbor who's a little bit different than you. You're left, they're right. You're up, they're down. You're in, they're out. You know, whatever. And and take that next step and say, look, I want to build a more robust community. I want to build a more robust neighborhood. I know you probably want that too. I want to be a part of healing what's tearing us apart. I heard about this thing called Love Anyway Gathering, where people who are different try to bring their crew together to just listen and learn from each other because most of us are kind of like isolating ourselves in our own echo chambers. But what if we took the leading edge here to make a more robust neighborhood and we loved anyway? So you hold on to your beliefs, I'll hold on to my beliefs, but we're mostly going to work to come together and listen and learn and love each other anyway without trying to convert each other, you know? Right. So these are happening all over the US, Canada. We're, we're, growing it out across the world right now. It has as much applicability on the Korean Peninsula as it has in Indonesia, Middle East, and mm. and across the US. Our conflicts are the same. You know, our conflicts are all essentially rooted in the same kind of stuff and fears of scarcity and all that. So if this idea, if if sort of the heart of what we've been talking about today is interesting, um, love anyway gathering would be one of the coolest things that I think you could get involved in healing what's tearing us apart on the front lines where you live before the next war starts. Mm. You can find out more about that um, on our website, preemptivelove.org. Uh, loveanyway.com is is also another URL that'll work for that, loveanyway.com. You can find out more about the book. We'll be launching all of this at a, at a you know, bigger level uh, when when the book and the we got an associated film with it and all this stuff is coming out on September really? 24th. So September 24th is a big launch day for us. September 24th, we'll have uh, a film called Love Anyway come out. The book will land in your Kindle um, or on your doorstep from Amazon, you know, all that. Love Anyway. Perfect. Yeah, I will. Um, I didn't know about the film. I saw a film referenced somewhere, but I couldn't find it. I kept Googling it. No, it's it. not out yet. Um, that, We're... That, that, well, that makes sense then. <laughs> so, Well, thank you again for coming on, Jeremy. I've enjoyed the conversation. And again, I enjoy what you're doing. Keep doing it even when it sucks. I'm sure there are days that it sucks. So, so keep doing it, man. I appreciate you coming. Thanks. On. Appreciate it. I'm walking slowly. I'm taking my time. All I like talking is starting to rhyme. I'm letting go alone.
just can't get enough of this beautiful life. I just can't get enough of this beautiful life. This planet seems to be, and the people that live on it, seems to have the intention of pitting side A against side B, having side C watch, waiting to see who is the weakest person so side C can come in and win it all, and then start all over and over and over again, pitting fear and apathy and angst and lack of motivation and finger-pointing and unlovingness, a character that does not represent any god, period. That seems to be the world that we live in. And I truly believe conversations like what just happened, conversations like that should happen with those in our communities that we don't intentionally engage with. And um, I've done more digging since talking with Jeremy. He's doing some great work. And so I cannot encourage you enough. Go out and get a copy of this book. It's fantastic. But dive into some of his work. Um, The world needs people that don't go. I think Jeremy's right. Not everybody can up and leave. Not everybody is equipped to do that. And that's fine. Find what you're equipped to do and do it. Just go and do something. I wonder what would happen. Special thanks to the collection for their music in today's episode. You'll find their music listed in the show notes and added to the Spotify playlist, which also has been converted into an Apple Music playlist as well. I have no idea how to get that because I don't use Apple Music, but if you do, I have a feeling you'll find out. I cannot wait to talk to you next week. And then after that, I'm terrified, but we'll figure that out together. Thanks for being here. Be blessed. Talk to you soon. Dreaming